My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via patreon.com forward slash singularity FM. Today, my guest on the show is none other but Professor Stuart Russell. Professor uh, Russell is a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley, as well as the co-author of the most popular textbook on artificial intelligence, titled Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach. Welcome to Singularity FM, Stuart. Thank you, Nicole. Fantastic. So if I were to ask you to introduce yourself in your own couple of words, how would you introduce yourself? Who is Stuart Russell? <laughs> well, I think it depends on who I'm talking to, but for this audience, I'm a professor of computer science at Berkeley. Um, I've been at Berkeley for 32 years, and before that, um, I first began doing AI when I was about 14. Um, very soon after I learned what a computer was, so I think my first computer was actually a programmable Sinclair calculator. Uh, and you could write programs with, I believe, 21 steps altogether. And uh, soon after that, I started doing a computing science A-level uh, while I was in high school. And, um, and my first significant program was a program that learned to play tic-tac-toe by itself, so a kind of reinforcement learning program. Wow. And then I wrote a chess program and so on. So this was all 40, more than 40 years ago. And um, at that time, it didn't seem there was any plausible route to doing AI as an academic career. Uh, it wasn't considered a real subject. Um, so I was a physicist, um, but when I finished my undergraduate degree in physics, I switched to computer science. I did my PhD at Stanford, uh, and then I moved to Berkeley from there. Wow, that's fascinating. I was going to ask you what was your first love, whether that was physics or computer science. But it seems that physics was kind of like a temporary detour away from computer science, which was kind of the more practical approach in life. And then you eventually returned back to your first love. Is that a true interpretation? I don't think it quite worked that way. I mean, I, I growing up, you know, I wanted to be a scientist, a particle physicist, you know, to discover the next thing beyond quarks or the next grand unified theory. Um, but when I was finishing my, P, my uh, physics undergraduate degree, you know, I had applied to physics PhD programs and I went to talk to some leading physicists. I talked to Chris Llewellyn Smith, who was on his way to becoming director of CERN, so one of the leading particle physicists in the, in the world. And, um, the picture that he laid out for what was happening in particle physics uh, to me was uh, sort of anti-inspiring. Um, and uh, when I spoke to the grad students and postdocs in physics, they expressed something similar that in fact, it was incredibly difficult to make significant contributions um, that uh, you know, if you were lucky, you would be 257th author on some paper about a particle accelerator experiment and you'd gradually work your way up the list of authors, and you tried to do that fast enough so that you could get a faculty position before your time as a postdoc ran out, 
uh, and then you'd become a taxi driver. <laughs> so uh, it didn't. It didn't seem like theoretical particle physics was maybe the the field with the brightest future. Um, whereas AI was really at the beginning. I mean, it was sort of, sort of nineteen of nineteen oh five or even eighteen ninety five in AI, mm-hmm. uh, where all the ma- big major discoveries are still to be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then so if we roll the tape even further than when you were younger than fourteen years old. Was there something before that that pushed you into this sort of computer science or physics path? And maybe, and I'm just like fishing here, but I watched an interview with you where you said that you read a lot of philosophy at some point in your life. So I'm wondering if that was before or after that. Uh, So the philosophy I read um, partly because my my girlfriend at Oxford was in the philosophy program. and also my PhD thesis um, was, uh, was, so it was about the use of knowledge in machine learning. And uh, that actually uh, leads into a lot of the philosophy of science literature. So I actually learned a lot about philosophy uh, during, my, during my PhD. But no, I think the, the interest in computer science um, was really sparked by my programmable calculator um, and then doing a computing science A-level. Um, but the interest in AI also um, came from a book uh, that I won as a prize. So I won a math prize at school, and um, I got to choose a book uh, for that prize. And the book I chose was called The Thinking Computer by um, Bert Raphael, who was the, one of the first co-editors of the AI Journal. And um, that was actually, it's, it's a very good book for a layperson to learn, at least in 1975 or whatever, to learn about um, AI and the various exciting ideas that went into it. Um, so so those multiple uh, um, influences. And then another thing that happened was um, just from the evolution of my own thinking um, about good and bad decision-making uh, and so on. I, I kind of developed this, this idea, which I discussed at length with my, with my dad, who also had a background in philosophy, um, that, decision, that, that effectively everything uh, about life could be reduced to a single number um, which I didn't know was called utility, but um, and that you could make all decisions by uh, maximizing the expected value of this numerical degree of desirability of of uh, some future sequence of events, and um, you know, so that that idea that that, that there was a um, a clearly definable justifiable basis for decision-making was something that I had started thinking about from the age of 11 or so. Um, Is that a fact or is that a hypothesis? Because I think there's still a debate about whether we can reduce everything down to a single number, isn't there? um, It depends who you ask. Okay. So So some, some people would say there's no debate about whether you can. There's a debate about whether people... Do, do. Yes. Uh, 
Um, so are people actually conforming to the prescriptions of, of rationality and so on? Um, but uh, I think the fact is that the way the axioms work to, to derive the basis for the existence of utility functions is sim it simply follows from the fact that we have to make choices. Um, and sometimes you have to make a choice between going to work and, you know, watching the sunrise and reading poetry. You have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. um, so you might say, well, how can you reduce poetry and sunrises to a single number? And you don't if you never have to make a choice. But you do have to make choices. And sometimes the world forces these choices on you. And so whenever you make a choice, you are, in effect, creating a ranking. And when you take rankings plus uncertainty, you get a, you get a numerical scale. Uh, and there's no escaping from that conclusion, as far as I can see. So is it fair to say that, then, and I don't even want, I, I still want to stay in the personal realm a little more, but, but is it fair to say that in a way, since you were 11 years old, then you're kind of basically translating this kind of decision-making uh, system or philosophy, if you will, if you want to call it, or framework rather, into the realm of the machines by creating AI, uh, uh, which, which is trained within and follows such a system. Perhaps, yeah. I think it, once you have that realization, you you automatically, well, at least I automatically think, okay, if it can be defined in this way, then it could be encoded. Uh, it can be turned into a procedure. It can be made into a program, and, and a machine could, in principle, uh, be making decisions using the same approach. And um, so, to me, that was very exciting. And in the end, that that view became the textbook um, sometime later. So the textbook was 1994. So I guess about 20 years later, um, it became the textbook. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you about the textbook then, because uh, I watched an interview where you said that the textbook became unreasonably successful very quickly. <laughs> Can you unpack that for us a little <laughs> bit? What do you mean? Uh, by especially the word unreasonable here is what's kind of surprising me. I just think we weren't really expecting it. Um, you know, there were a number of other textbooks. There was Pat Winston's textbook. There was uh, Drew McDermott's textbook. There was uh, Richard Knight, Elaine Rich, um, and Kevin Knight's textbook. Um, all of which are are interesting and have you know, and I guess also Luger and Stubblefield. Um, so they had roughly equal market shares, I guess. I don't exactly know. But um, so we were expecting to join uh, this group of textbooks. And, you know, we thought we had some advantages. We partly, partly being more recent. Uh, so we had more up-to-date stuff, particularly on probability, which was undergoing very rapid development, starting with um, Udo Pearl's book. Um, and, but it turned out, I think that the, um, the thing people liked the most was this uh, unified approach that what we're doing is building intelligent agents and all the different parts, reasoning, learning, decision-making, planning, they're all constituent factors in creating intelligent agents. And so I think students like that, um, 
And if students like it, then professors like teaching it. Um, and uh, so it, it seemed that very quickly, maybe within just three or four years, uh, we had become the, the dominant textbook in the market. So are you saying that your kind of advantage or what made you stand out was kind of the unified narrative, perhaps, if I may put it this way, that you were able to organize in opposition or in contrast to the alternative textbooks? Yeah, I think AI up until then was mainly taught um, as a set of different fields. There was natural language processing, which was about language. There was computer vision. There was search. There was planning. These are all just separate disciplines. Um, you know, if you're lucky, there was a bit of probability. But um, the way I think about it is really we're building intelligent agents. Intelligent agents is about acting in a way that is expected to achieve objectives. And the differences among the subfields actually have to do with just different specific assumptions about the environment and the objective. So is the environment deterministic? Okay, well, then you're in planning and search. Is it stochastic? Oh, well, then you're in MDPs and reinforcement learning. But uh, the overall thing is the same. And, and I think making that point about AI, that it's really unified discipline, which is fractionated not by the fact that it consists of 10 different communities, but by the fact that environments themselves come in different uh, shapes and sizes and flavors, um, and different techniques are appropriate uh, for different flavors of environment. Um, it was both, I think, you know, conceptually more coherent, but it was also much more generative of uh, new research work. Because once you kind of understand that, you can say, oh, well, there isn't any work on, <clears throat> you know, continuous partially observable environments. Okay, why don't we, why don't we work on those? Because, there, you know, there are lots of real examples of those and they just hadn't been properly investigated. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I would say, you know, it would be probably more healthy for the field if, if there were, um, you know, more textbooks uh, competing. And then, you know, that, um, and I think, you know, one other good book that came along is the one by David Poole and Alan Mackworth uh, and Randy Goebel. Um, What's the title uh, of that one by any chance? I think it's called Computational Intelligence. Uh, Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, I think uh, it sounds um, familiar. I haven't read it, but I think maybe. And yeah, so that, I mean, that's a good book and it, it has, you know, it's a similar overall approach. It has um, probably a, a bit more concentration on logical reasoning because of the background of the, mm -hmm. of the authors, um, but it's. Uh, Let me throw in a sidekick question, if I may, just sort of to, to, scramble things up a little bit. Are you a dog person or a cat person? <laughs> uh, well, I was a cat person growing up. We always had cats and I never particularly liked dogs. They made a lot of noise and they tried to bite you and so on. And then um, uh, one day, so my sister, uh, soon after I joined the faculty at Berkeley, my, my sister was living with me for a while and um, 
one day she brought home a dog and uh you know that dog became part of the family and then um later on after we after i got married um we met a dog on the beach who was about to be put down um wow from uh so he was sort of having a last weekend at the beach with the spca people uh before he was put down because they couldn't find a family and he adopted us so he became our family's dog uh sammy so we've uh we've become a dog family wow good for you thank you for doing that that's amazing okay Wow. So you started as a, as a cat person, you ended up being a dog person. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's fantastic. What's your biggest dream? What is it that sort of makes you get up and go running sometimes towards doing your work, hopefully? Or it, that, does that happen even? Like it excites you, like you want to rush to do it? Uh, my, so my, my dream in my, in my academic life is that um, is that AI will contribute to uh, a future golden age of humanity. And, um, you know, the more I learn about history, uh, you know, even up to the present day, and I understand Steven Pinker's view that things are getting better, uh, and I largely agree with that, but... Um, history, the history of the human race is a great deal of misery inflicted on people uh, for reasons I think that ultimately come down to a competition for access to sort of the wherewithal of life. Um, and, uh, you know, compounded with a good dose of ignorance and bigotry and tribalism and a few other things, um, and it, there's a chance that we could get past all that. Uh, what we're going to do if we do have that freedom to choose how society goes instead of things being chosen for us by the outcome of conflicts, uh, which is the way it has been. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure we have quite enough wisdom yet to make good choices about the future, but at least I think it will be nice for the human race to have a choice about its future. By the way, that history of tribalism and violence uh, that you're describing uh, is not true only within our species, but particularly also of our species towards other species. Um, so, for example, every year on our planet, we kill something like 73 billion animals, just like your dog was about to be put down by the SPCA. Mm -hmm. uh, 73 billion animals annually get killed for a variety of reasons, from food to even sports and fun, if you will, or sometimes simply because they're at the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's just the animals, but we also have 1.3 trillion fish <laughs> annually. Uh, so it's not only within our species that this has been going on, but and it's particularly important, I think, to stress uh, that we're doing this to the other species too. So while Steven Pinker may be correct that we have been improving our condition, it he doesn't actually spend a lot of time, if any, uh, noticing the fact that we are in the midst of the sixth extinction and many of the other species are either threatened or already have gone extinct. Uh, and we are causing growing amount of violence and destructions to the other species. Yep. So we could uh, we could talk about that 
point later because it's one of the questions raised about um, whether AI systems should be responsive to human preferences. So some, some people argue that they should be responsive not just to human preferences, but also to animal preferences. Yeah, actually, I'm bringing this and I'm going to bring it later because and there's that's one reason that we need to talk about it. But there's also other reasons that I would bring later. So uh, if mm -hmm. you are sort of dreaming to bring AI that would hopefully help us solve those problems and those challenges or at the very least alleviate them, aren't you afraid that other people are saying that maybe through your work, you're actually going to accomplish quite the opposite. You're going to bring the destruction of the human race. And they're saying that our species will be superseded, eventually replaced by the artificial intelligence. And so, in other words, mm -hmm. instead of helping us, uh, yeah. would be, your work would be instrumental in destroying us, at least so the argument goes by those people. Um. Yeah, I, well, I, so I think that's about right, uh, <laughs> except that um, I don't think you should think about this as a question of sort of weather forecasting, um, you know, that AI is going to do this or AI is going to do that. We get to choose what kind of AI we build. Um, so I think of it more as a steering problem, you know, and if there's a future which is catastrophic for the human race, we should steer away from it. Mm -hmm. um, and roughly speaking, there's only sort of two ways to do that. One is to just stop and go the other way, right? So put an end to AI research, which I think is probably impossible. Um, you know, as a practical matter, AI research proceeds by people writing stuff on whiteboards and uh, it's very hard to pass legislation banning certain equations being written on whiteboards when you don't even know what those equations are yet you know that's that's not uh, that's not ever going to work and the other reason of course is that there's huge commercial interest and in, as well as military and government interest but um, you know the majority of funding right now going into AI research is happening in corporations and so um, I think to just say, okay, we'll just put the brakes on and stop doing AI research is, is probably not feasible. Um, it's probably too late for that to happen. I right think now. Philip K. Dick once noted that just because something bears the appearance of being inevitable, that doesn't mean that one should go along with it willingly. <laughs> no, but it means you should, you should, you should try to push things in the right direction. Um, and if you, you're right, so if you're going to put in your effort into it, it should be pushing it in the right direction, not in just standing in front of it and getting flattened. Um, so the, so the response that I've adopted, you know, and and this is a question that we raised in the first edition of the textbook, uh, in night back in '94. There's a section called, uh, "What if we do succeed?" And uh, you know, even then, it was clear that the AI community had put next to zero effort into thinking about its destination and thinking about the consequences of success. You know, and that's primarily because the problems are extremely difficult and you know, making an inch of progress is incredibly painful. So 
maybe was too early to be stressing this question, but I think in recent years, more and more people have been asking the same question, what if we succeed? And um, the, the concrete question is, okay, what exactly is bad about a better AI? Right? You could ask similar questions like, well, what's bad about faster computers? What's bad How about does better medicine? What look like to you is what I want to ask. Right. Well, success would, you know, in, in crude terms would be machines that are more capable than humans across a wide range of, of cognitive activities. Is that so, sufficient? Uh, is that sufficient to cause problems? Or to help us or hurt us? I think, um, yes, I, I, I think that because, you know, it, machines have other characteristics um, such as scalability and, um, and the fact that you can speed them up uh, so that, you know, if you had something that was in the ballpark of human capability, you could probably fairly quickly go beyond human capabilities and you could also make millions of copies. Um, and they can also, you know, unlike humans who can only communicate through words pretty much, um, machines can communicate at a much higher rate so they could collaborate much more effectively with each other. And uh, my, my question was, why are we thinking that's a good thing, right? Because here's what I'm struggling with here. And, and I totally get that idea. They're better at us at communication. They're better at us at cognitive capacity, at intelligence, which is to say problem solving. And we're facing major, major problems in our world right now, right? But Let's look at, for example, um, Albert Einstein. Uh, he was dismayed that his German colleagues uh, in Berlin, and Berlin was sort of the center of the scientific world at the time, basically overnight switched their attention from their scientific work and became German nationalists and started producing weapons of mass destruction, such as, for example, mustard gas and chemical weapons and so on and so on. So those were people with high, very high cognitive capabilities. They were very good at communicating, at organizing, at system thinking. And yet they were putting, arguably, in my view, all those skills towards the bad end, not towards a good end. And eventually... Right, right, right. Okay. So, so but I mean, the, so... Um, let's separate two things, right? The, the, the technical capability of the system and then how we choose to, to use it. So the first question is, um, will we succeed in creating machines with this, uh, these, this level of capabilities, right? So if a machine is too stupid, it's not going to have uh, much benefit and it's not going to have much negative impact either because it's just unable to affect the world in any, in any complicated way. Um, so the question is, you know, what, um, what's wrong with better AI? And in order, so in order to, to stave off this uh, takeover of the world by machines, we need to understand exactly where the problem comes from, right? It's not just from better AI. It seems, as far as I can tell, it's from better AI with the wrong objectives. And um, this is a point made by uh, Norbert Wiener, for example, in a paper in 1960, he said, 
we have to be absolutely sure that the purpose we put into the machine is the purpose which we really desire. Debugging. Uh, well, it's not so much the debugging of the uh, software, it's the debugging of our specification, our ability to specify the objective uh, uh, correctly. And that, um, that's fine when you have a stupid machine, and if it's clear that you gave it the wrong objective, you can sort of reset, press the reset button and fix the objective and start again. And you, iter you can iterate that multiple times. But if you have a really intelligent machine, um, you have at least two problems, right? One is that the machine, given this objective, will actually take steps to prevent itself from being switched off because being switched off is a guarantee that it will fail in its objective and doesn't want to fail its objective, so it will find ways to prevent itself from being switched off. And the other thing is, of course, that um, it may not be clear that you've given it the wrong objective until it's way too late. Uh, and in fact, there are arguments which I think see, seem reasonable that a, a machine that suspected that you might try to switch it off would in fact disguise uh, its true nature, it's um, the fact that it has an objective that you may, may not like, uh, it may disguise that fact until it's uh, in an impregnable position. And so, um, so, so the, the question then is, what do you, what do, you do about that? Um, and uh, my view is you have to change the way you th think about AI. Um, and not just AI, right? This is not just an AI way of thinking that machines optimize objectives. This is, this is how statisticians think about it. The you minimize a loss, expected loss function. It's how control theory people think about. You minimize a cost function and operations research people maximize sum of rewards. Um, so it's ubiquitous. You know, you could say this is, this is the technology of the 20th century is machinery for optimizing objectives. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the wrong, it's the wrong, wrong definition. Okay, perfect. Because I want to roll back the tape. I think we jumped in a little bit uh, uh, quickly or forward. Uh, so let me just roll back a little bit. And since you are the father of uh, the, the most popular book, or at least the co-author of the most popular textbook on AI, and I have done 230 interviews on the topic. And one thing that I have noticed is that everyone has a little bit and sometimes even a lot different definition of what is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So uh, can you perhaps start by telling us what, in your view, is the proper definition of AI? <laughs> well, I can tell you what has been the proper definition of AI for a while, um, which is machines that, um, that act intelligently, which means machines that uh, act in a way that can be expected to achieve objectives. And um, that's been the definition. And I think it's, it's been very helpful in moving the field forward, um, you know, particularly compared to machines that behave like humans or machines that pass a Turing test or anything, anything like that, because um, that, that kind of definition is sort of non-constructive. In other words, 
I can't take the definition and a, a system design and show that the system design meets the definition. All I can do is an experiment to see if it behaves like a human, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, whereas if I have a definition that I can reduce to sort of mathematical terms, then I can take a system design and say, I can prove mathematically, yeah, this system design satisfies this definition. And, that, and what that means, I can take the definition and work back to system designs that, that necessarily satisfy it. So, so in that sense, I think it's been very helpful. The one weak point is this notion of objectives. And we've always assumed that, oh, well, the human will put that in. You know, in the early days of AI, it was logic-based, logic and the system was supposed to achieve a goal. So all the planning systems, all of the search-based and problem-solving systems, the goal was the thing that the human said you were supposed to achieve. Mm -hmm. And um, the point is that's a mistake because uh, it only works as long as the human can express the goal perfectly. Um, and the difficulty is that that's just not feasible in practice and you get these uh, you, know, you get these counterexamples you say I want to cure cancer as quickly as possible and then you know the machine will uh, probably induce cancer on, in everybody on earth you know so you've got 7.4 billion experimental animals uh, you can try out lots of treatment combinations on, on all of those uh, experimental animals who happen to be human and we don't necessarily want them to die of cancer so so I think the, you usually call this the King Midas problem. Uh, and yeah. uh, Tim O'Reilly, whom I interviewed just uh, a couple of weeks before you, uh, calls that actually the debugging problem because he says that most debugging is what the programmer thought told the machine to do and what the programmer later discovered that the machine understood it was told to do. And those were very often two different things, of course. Uh, or it's uh, recently been called the value alignment uh, problem. Um, yeah, I mean, debugging is, is you know, that, that's a word that already has a meaning. Um, and it, it has to do with errors in the, in the code. And, you know, here we're, not, we're really thinking that, you know, the code is the thing that optimizes and then the objective is the thing that you, that you put in once you've written all the code uh, and then off it goes. Um, so it is a kind of debugging, but it's a very, it's a very different kind of debugging. Your, your definition is very different than Tim O'Reilly uh, in that sense. But also, let me go back to the AI definition, because I think you're pushing away, which is very interesting, from the sort of Alan Turing and maybe even the McCarthy uh, classic definition of AI, which had a lot more relationship to human intelligence, wasn't, didn't it? Um, well, Alan Turing, actually, I don't think Alan Turing was defining intelligence that way. And I think this is, this is a beginning of a long series of misunderstandings, mm -hmm. um, which actually didn't have much impact on the AI community because in AI, basically nobody has ever worked on the Turing test to a first approximation. I, I do not know a single serious AI researcher who has even spent a day working on passing the Turing test. Um, I so think Kevin what the two... Warwick, didn't Kevin Warwick work on that? I think I rest my case. So... <laughs> um, okay. So All right. the... 
um, the that, that was a cheap that was a cheap shot. I I apologize for that. I didn't actually know that Kevin had worked on it, but not, not actually I don't and I don't know Kevin. So none of the AI researchers that I know, you know, the people I see at conferences uh, year after year after year after year, not nobody, you know, there are no papers at NIPS on passing the Turing test. There's no papers at AAAI or HKI on passing the Turing test. Uh, you know, these are the main AI conferences. And Kevin Warwick claimed that a, few, a couple of years ago that there was this AI that was developed with uh, sort of guidance from him that passed the, the Turing test, supposedly. And it was actually very designed to kind of win because it was pretending to be a 14-year-old boy from the Ukraine speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, saw, I saw that. So, but, uh, you yeah. know, again, it's not, it doesn't embody any serious AI research and it's not the subject of papers at any of the mainstream AI Conferences. I agree. Um, so, um, you know, I think the Turing test was there to to ward off a particular philosophical attack on the AI enterprise um, and this argument about, you know, whether or not machines really think. And if you sort of, if you claim to prove on a philosophical basis that machines aren't thinking, then well, then surely the whole effort is a waste of time. And what Turing is saying is, well, you know, that's beside the point. Even if you could, it still wouldn't have any effect on the field because what we're trying to do is create intelligent behavior. He offers the Turing test simply as uh, an, an example of how you might operationalize the notion of intelligent behavior as opposed to some other kind of behavior. But he's not saying... Okay, and what we need to do now is work on passing the Turing test, right? Um, so if you, if you look, it doesn't actually really have much in the way of research recommendations in that paper, but one of them is that we would, um, he could talk, talks about the child program, uh, which is a recommendation that we use machine learning to create intelligent systems. And if you look at how he proposes to teach the child program, um, it's not by any means aiming to pass the Turing test. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just aiming to become more knowledgeable and more capable of understanding the, the real world. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, So I don't think he was really advocating the Turing test. And I think this is a mistake that the media have perpetuated uh, over and over again, and the AI community has largely ignored it uh, so mm -hmm. as, as it should. My my notion was more connected to the fact that intelligence is something that we so far has presumed to be only almost exclusively pretty much in the human domain. And so, for example, uh, John McCarthy in 1956, when he was defining AI, I'm reading here, says that, uh, and also according to the Merriam-Webster's uh, dictionary quoting John McCarthy, is that uh, the definition has two meanings. Number one is the capability of a machine to imitate intelligent human behavior. And number two is a branch of computer science dealing with the simulation of intelligence, intelligent behavior in computers. So both of those definitions, the John McCarthy sort of stream of definition, if you will, are very much connected to taking the human intelligence and bringing it or simulating it or tr translating it into the machine realm in a way. So it's very much kind of, uh, originating still in humanity, whereas yours is kind of fundamentally different, if I may say so. Um, 
Yeah, I think it probably is. And I think, you know, my, my sense is that the, the two, in fact, it wouldn't particularly matter which one you pursued for the time being, because um, both goals are a very, very long way away from the current state of the art. And the, the two vectors point in roughly the same direction. Um, but in, in the long run, if you, want to, if you want to make a claim that what you're doing you know, from a scientific point of view is reproducing human behavior and human mental faculties, then that's a, that's a something that can only be borne out by psychological experiments, mm-hmm. right? You have, to be, you have to be arguing that you're actually not only doing things in the same uh, with the same external characteristics as humans, but also by the same methods as, as humans. And that's cognitive science. And I think in 1956, cognitive science didn't really exist. Um, in fact, there wasn't, there wasn't a clear distinction. But I think pretty soon after that, you know, cognitive science, which is based on empirical claims about psychology uh, and AI kind of separated. And, you know, it's interesting talking to Alan Newell, for example. Um, so he, he would build this SOAR architecture, which most AI researchers, I would say, think of as a kind of a, a if you like, almost a, a programming language for building intelligent systems. And um, Alan Newell pushed back extremely hard against that view right for him it was a cognitive model of humans and i think for most ai researchers they would say well you might think that but we don't see it that way and we don't care right what we care about is the fact that you can make it do really intelligent things um, by you know appropriate provision of knowledge and and sub goals structures and so on and so forth are things you have to do to And they couldn't care less about the fact that it was human. It was supposedly human. Yeah, I think Edgar Edgar Dijkstra said it best when he said the question of whether a computer could think is the same as asking a question of whether a submarine could swim. Uh, Yeah, so he was was referring, I think, to the same question that Turing was addressing. And it's it's another way uh, of answering that question. Um, But you have to remember Turing was writing in 19... 1950, when um, you know there there was a very different intellectual environment than there is today, um, and I think there was a very significant part of the intellectual intellectual establishment that simply did not want to countenance the possibility of intelligent computers at all. Yeah. It's about the same time that Jane Goodall went into the forest to study um, chimpanzees and she was told that, you know, intelligence and empathy and, and all those things were exclusively human, that she was not to give them any names but numbers because it was unscientific to give chimps names. They were supposed to have numbers and that <laughs> it's impossible for chimps to use or create tools. So, uh, mm-hmm. but let's go back to our conversation here. So we talked about the definition of AI and your version of it. 
uh, and you're kind of the authority because you wrote the most popular textbook or the most influential one. What about the difference that nowadays we hear a lot of these terms such as machine learning and deep learning? How are they different from AI and how are they different from each other? What does machine learning stand for and, and how is it different from deep learning? Okay, so machine learning is, is the branch of AI that studies how machines can improve their performance through experience. Um, um, and uh, deep learning is one sub 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 field of machine learning um, so deep learning uses a particular hypothesis class of uh, neural networks typically convolutional networks with a large number of layers um, so it's it's um, and it's been particularly successful at tasks like vision and speech recognition but I think it's um, it's often the case that, um, again, partly through the media, uh, uh, that people think of machine learning as a replacement for AI or competitor to AI or somehow AI is the old thing and machine learning is a new thing. I mean, machine learning has been around, you know, as I said, since at least Turing's paper in 1950. Uh, that was his recommendation about how we should do AI was to do machine learning. Um, so it's absolutely been part of the field since the beginning. I mean, the the term, I'm not sure when the term exactly originated, but you know, the first machine learning workshops um, were started by AI researchers, people like um, Richard Mikalski, Tom Mitchell, Jaime Carbonell, um, wrote a series of, of compendiums that, or edited a series of books um, called Machine Learning, which collected papers together. Um, and that was the genesis of machine learning as a field. There was, of course, research before that. I mean, there was the early neural network research in the late 50s, um, 1960s, the perceptron era. Um, there was early work on decision tree learning. Um, and then I think what, when it started to be called machine learning was when people started thinking about, okay, if, if AI systems are going to be knowledge-based systems, how do we learn the knowledge, right? Instead of having humans specify the knowledge, it's going to be better if we can learn that knowledge from, from data instead. Um, okay, so we, we, we just spent a, a little bit of time or a lot of time on the definitions and their origins and so on. Let us talk a little bit perhaps about what you call to be the control problem uh, and perhaps the, the three laws of uh, Russell that you have as a solution to the control problem? Uh, sure. Okay, so the control problem um, is pretty simple. You know, sometimes I call it the gorilla problem um, because uh, roughly speaking, you, you say, okay, you make a more intelligent species than you are. Uh, you know, how's that going to end? Well, you know, for the gorillas, their ancestors made us and it didn't end very well for them. So um, how do we avoid being in the same situation as the gorillas are with respect to us? And um, you know, another, another way of putting it is you know, that in, intelligence really means power to shape the world in a way that satisfies your objectives and uh, you make something that's more 
more intelligent than you, then it's more powerful than you. And how do you retain power over something that's more powerful than you forever? Um, you know, <laughs> this doesn't feel all that promising. So, um, but that's, I think, you know, we're going to face this because I, I, I can't say exactly when, but I think progress in AI is going to continue. And there are remaining unsolved breakthroughs that have to happen, but they probably are going to happen. Um, and we're going to have systems that can actually outplan us in the real world, uh, outthink us. And um, that could be an issue, particularly if, um, for example, they have the ability to affect the world on a global scale. And, and arguably, you know, when you think about the effect that, for example, Hitler had simply by speaking and writing, right? Machines can do that. Machines can connect to, you know, five, six billion screens um, and they can have a, an effect on a global scale just by speaking and writing, let alone uh, marshalling vast armies of automated physical equipment and weapons. Um, so we need to think about this problem now before... Uh, before the fact, before we create human level or superhuman intelligence systems. And um, another way of putting the same question is perhaps the, the question that I mentioned before with the other species, which is uh, we all originated from the same roots. Uh, chimpanzees are our closest cousins. Genetically speaking, we share 99% of, of our genes with them. And yet that doesn't stop us from destroying their habitat and killing them to the point where they used to be millions and now they're in the mere thousands. So why should we be different than chimpanzees when the AIs come to be? Yeah, you know, so this, this is, um, you know, and, and I think it's, um, it's a slightly different problem because we are the ones who are designing. I don't think it's right to say that the gorillas or the chimpanzees designed us. Uh, they kind of produce by accident. Uh, and I'd say that's a good argument against doing AI purely with genetic programming because then we really will create our successes by accident uh, without even understanding how they work. Um, that, I think that's probably a mistake. So in order to think about the control problem, we've got to think about, you know, where do we lose control? And if we lose control when the machine is pursuing a different objective, uh, than the one we would wish them to pursue. And if they're more intelligent than us, then generally speaking, they get their objective and we don't get our objective. And if the, if the two objectives are too different, uh, then the outcome could be, could be catastrophic. So, you know, we might at some point find that the atmosphere has disappeared or that, you know, our, our entire food supply has been mutated beyond usability or or who knows what other kind of consequence there might be. Um, so the problem comes, I think, from this traditional notion of AI as uh, optimizing machinery into which we feed objectives. And um, so just as we believe these days that using machine learning to acquire knowledge is, is a bit more robust less fragile than having to specify all the knowledge by hand, uh, the same is probably going to be true for objectives, that to actually specify completely and correctly 
the human objective. We can get into what that means in more, in more detail, but let's assume that the sort of humanity in this machine and humanity has something that it wants. Uh, how do we specify that completely and correctly by hand, I think is this probably an infeasible problem. So um, instead we want it to be the case that the machine is responsible for learning about what it is that we want as well as learning how to actually achieve what it is that we want. And um, so that's the basis of these three principles, um, which, uh, which I just actually developed for the purpose of, of giving, uh, giving presentations about this, makes it easy for people to understand, to, to grasp these three principles. So the first one is that the machine's only objective is uh, realization of human preferences. And that's actually um, quite an important thing in itself. Uh, it means the machine has no objective of its own. Uh, so I'm in some sense contradicting Asimov's third law, which says the machine is supposed to preserve its own existence. There is no reason to have that law because in order to achieve human preferences, generally speaking, the machine is gonna wanna preserve its own existence simply to continue being helpful to humans. And there's no other reason to do it, right? If, if you give the machine another reason to do it, then you're actually creating a conflict between human preferences and the machine's desire for self-preservation. And that, should, that conflict should not exist. Um, the second principle is that the machine is going to be uncertain about what human preferences are. Uh, and this turns out to be crucial because the, you know, the King Midas problem, the problem that um, you know, King Midas faced, he specified an objective, but it was the wrong one. He, didn't, he shouldn't have said, I want everything I touch to turn to gold because that included his food and his drink and his family and so on. So he probably, you would have wanted the machine to say, okay, well, you, you say that, but I don't think that's what you really mean. You know, maybe... He, what you really want is just that whenever you point to something, you want the ability to have that thing turn to gold if, if you choose to make it gold. So how about when you point to something and say, abracadabra, we'll turn it to gold for you. Or maybe we'll check with you first before turning it to gold or something like that. And you know, you could negotiate a protocol that would have made King Midas happy uh, and would have been quite different from his original request. And so, um, so, a machine that believes it knows the objective is going to pursue that objective. And in fact, it doesn't matter if the human is jumping up and down and saying, no, 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 don't do that. You're going to destroy the world. Because the machine, since it knows the objective and it's done the optimization, it knows that the action it's taking is correct. And whatever you're saying, whatever you're jumping up and down doing is just noise, right? You, the, the objective is a sufficient statistic and human behavior, subsequent human behavior is irrelevant uh, once you have the objective. And so by making the machine uncertain about the objective, the machine is then open. In fact, it has an incentive to acquire more information about human preferences. And the, the person jumping up and down and saying, no, no, you're gonna destroy the world is clearly more information about human preferences. Uh, and the machine will then defer to that request to stop doing whatever it's doing. 
uh, because presumably it didn't realize that that is in fact violating some human preference. That's really important. And so, so those two principles work together actually to make machines deferential to humans uh, and willing to accept redirection. Uh, they have an incentive to ask permission before they do anything that might really have a negative effect because they're not sure. Um, and machines will allow themselves to be switched off right? because they want to avoid doing things that will upset us. And one way to avoid doing things that upset people is to allow yourself to be switched off. So you actually have a positive incentive to allow yourself to be switched off. Whereas if, if you know the objective, you have no incentive to allow yourself to be switched off. In fact, you have an incentive to prevent yourself from being switched off. Um, so those two principles, I think, are, are the core. And then the third principle is essentially about grounding this notion of human preferences that appears in the first two principles. And this is probably the most difficult one. Um, but what it says is that the, the choices that humans make, so human behavior provides information about human preferences. And the reason that's problematic is, of course, human beings are not rational. And their actions don't reflect their preferences in a perfect way. So, for example, if you look at um, Lisa Doll playing AlphaGo, right? Well, at some point, Lisa Doll makes a move which guarantees he's going to lose. Now, if you thought he was rational, you'd say, oh, well, then I guess he must want to lose. But clearly, that would be a wrong conclusion to draw, right? He wants to win, but his rational is insufficient to ensure that he always acts in that in that way um, and so in order to understand human behavior as providing evidence for human preferences you have to think actually about the real human cognitive architecture in some sense you're sort of inverting through that architecture to get at the underlying preferences um, and then there are some other complications to do with the fact that our preferences may not be stable. There may be, in fact, no clear notion of what human preferences are in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, our preferences are plastic, meaning that what, what I think I'm going to like in the future may not turn out to be what I like. I may change my preferences as a result of experience. Or, you know, there's my preferences in hindsight, my preferences in anticipation, my preferences at the time. These are all different. So there's a lot of complications, but I think the complications are probably secondary. If, if our main goal here is to avoid the fate of the gorillas, right, um, then one hopes that these considerations are secondary. And the main thing is that the machine uh, fairly quickly learns the main things that we care about and is also uh, appropriately uncertain about the rest so that it doesn't accidentally uh, and irreversibly uh, destroy things that we care about. So, so if we can't, if you said humans' uh, preferences are plastic, wouldn't that kind of go against what we started our conversation today with, that discussion of whether that human utility curve assignable a number 
is really a fact or a hypothesis that we started building everything upon since you were 11 years old? <laughs> um, it, it certainly is a, it, it, I think it requires a refinement of the, of the theory. And, it, and, and in fact, I would say at the moment, we just don't have a good way of, of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so for example, uh, you, you think about taking drugs from what I understand, uh, it's often the case that before people take drugs, they, they know that they don't want to be a drug addict. Yeah. But the, the, the taking of drugs not only makes you a drug addict, but actually changes your whole conscious and cognitive processes so that you even start to believe that it's perfectly fine to be a drug addict. I think it uh, requires your DNA uh, uh, in, in certain ways, which uh, make it very uh, uh, hard for you not only to give up, but you could have given up drugs for 20 years and then it takes only one or two hits afterwards to go right back where you were 20 years before that. Uh, and uh, we have actually a couple of very serious drug addicts, unfortunately, in the family. And they've been trying to get clean uh, for, in one case, maybe for seven or eight years. Uh, and it's been a total failure, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So it's very, very difficult. And, and you could just say, well, okay, their preferences after taking drugs should just be discounted. Um, but in fact, when you look at, you know, newborn babies, they don't have complex political preferences or preferences about whether man should, should explore the universe or remain on earth or, you know, they don't have preferences about free speech and, and any of those things. So clearly we acquire preferences over time through experience. And you're always going to have this question, well, whose preferences are you, are you optimizing for? The preferences you have now or, the, or the, your sort of post hoc uh, you know, the preferences of the future you after this sequence of experiences. Um, and I think that's a really important question. And at the moment, from what I understand, there isn't really a good philosophical foothold, uh, which we can use to, to start thinking about, you know, and then what should the programs do? Um, so there isn't, we don't know what, what we want to have happen um, as yet. But one thing that's clear is that because of plasticity, um, if we don't think this through carefully, you could have a situation where AI systems actually mold the preferences of humans, for example, in ways that make them easier to satisfy. Right. Uh, and you could say, well, this is what politicians do all the time, right? They, or the they, tell, pe they tell people to care about uh, certain things, about you know, uh, winning wars or, or keeping immigrants out, which are you know, relatively easy to do. Uh, and then you deliver what you said, what you've convinced them they want. I know um, you're a believer of, a sort of the, the Stephen Omohundro uh, provable safe uh, mathematical systems uh, sort of line of thinking. Uh, and I had, uh, I had Omohundro on my show before. But there's a lot of criticism coming from a, a variety of people who say that the nature of intelligence is that we cannot have a provably safe, and even mathematically speaking, we cannot have a provably safe mathematical system. Uh, so there's a, a paper 
published by, I think, Stuart Armstrong from uh, the Oxford Martin uh, School of Future Studies. There's another paper pu published by Roman Jampolski, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, also, uh, and both of those papers uh, put forward the claim that, or the argument, um, that it is impossible, in fact, to design such system, that therefore there would always be that uncertainty. You, uh, well, so I don't, I don't think Stuart Armstrong's paper says that. Um, I think Stuart is talking about a certain identifiability issue in the, uh, the question of um, the combination of an irrational human uh, with some preference function. And uh, if, if you think about the, that combination, so if you've got an unknown human decision-making process and you have unknown preferences and then you observe the behavior, well, you could explain the behavior in terms of many different combinations of non-rational decision-making plus preferences. You know, so for example, Gary Kasparov, you might think, He's a good chess player who wants to win. But maybe he's just a really, really, really bad chess player who really, really, really wants to lose. And he's so bad that he just keeps winning all the time. <laughs> right? Uh, now, yeah, I mean, theoretically that's possible. But uh, to me, that would be sort of almost meaningless to ascribe to Gary Kasparov the, the desire to lose every single game but just be so bad, so sort of anti-rational that he ends up winning every single game. Um, and, uh, you know, you could also imagine actually doing, um, you know, because there, there is a fact of the matter in some sense, right? There's, there's a fact of the matter about what your decision-making procedure is. And you could imagine exploring it using fMRI or, you know, other kinds of neuroscience techniques. Um, and similarly, if, you know, if, if instead of Gary Kasparov, we were thinking about, uh, you know, what about AlphaGo, right? You know, maybe AlphaGo is a really, really bad Go player who really, really, really wants to lose and keeps on winning by accident, right? But we can go look at the software and see that that's not the case, right? So there is a fact of the matter, and um, it's just a question of using more sophisticated techniques and, you know, just, you know, we do science. Uh, to find out the inter internal structure of molecules and all kinds of other stuff um, based on piecing together reasonable hypotheses that explain the evidence well. And, and the same thing is going to be true for understanding the human cognitive process. I'm not minimizing the difficulty, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I think it's, it's reasonable for us to proceed on the basis that um, we have something resembling preferences and we have a decision-making procedure that, you know, at least in simple cases, will tend to choose the thing that we prefer. But and uh, that's, you know, and then the rest is sort of complications, but it's not a fundamental mm -hmm. difficult. So the way I personally kind of approach this from sort of a philosophical and very poor way, perhaps, uh, I look at it as sort of like even from a parental point of view. When you have a child, you're giving birth to a new intelligence. Uh, 
and you do everything. And when they come out into the world, they're empty hard drives. They have no programming. We have to install the operating system. We have to <laughs> teach them that deferential thinking of uncertainty that you're talking about, your second principle, usually coming with respect to their the child's parents and their elders and yep. so on and so on. And we can do everything we can to give them the best education, the best possible nourishing, loving environment. And yet, and so we can improve the probability that they would turn out well, but we don't have a guarantee that they would. And we don't have a guarantee that one day they would not become a Charles Manson or even Adolf Hitler, despite everything that we've done. And that's kind of my take on the nature of intelligence. Is that so? Well, but that's because we, as I say, we don't get to design uh, the baby, right? Um, it's not a completely blank. We're not installing the operating system. The baby comes with actually a great deal of built-in preferences, including self-preservation, including pain avoidance, uh, you know, seeking pleasure, mm-hmm. uh, avoiding hunger, and so on. Um, and, uh, but, you know, so I, I think by and large, babies and, and, and humans are significantly selfish entities. Whereas selfishness is a factor of evolution and of survival in a world of scarcity. Right, right. But, but, uh, but yeah, yes, it's co- of course it is. But we are not evolving. You know, our machines are not the result of evolution. We don't have to, and we shouldn't build them to be selfish. In fact, what I'm proposing in the first principle is precisely that they be perfectly altruistic uh, towards humanity. And, um, you know, so if, if that goal is, is, if those principles are fully realized, um, and obviously they need a lot more working out in practice, and they're not intended to be laws, so this is sort of a little note to the, the EU Parliament, please don't try to legislate uh, Asimov's laws or Russell's laws, uh, because these are, these are really just intended as guidelines to AI researchers for how to think about a different kind of way of doing AI because the, the old way I think is much, much more problematic. Um, and this way, I think, you know, the, the, the core idea that uncertainty about human preferences leads to deferential behavior. I think that's, that's a robust idea and it will survive all of these complications and elaborations. But, but Roman Yampolsky said, for example, on that note, that what if we are certain, let's say you're saying that the robot should be uncertain in its own preferences and defer to the preferences of the human. What if the human says, I'm certain, kill this guy. I'm certain, kill him. <laughs> right? Or, or he says... Uh, it doesn't matter whether he says it, right? So, but the, but so, so don't, I mean, it, preferences means preferences over entire future lives. Right, so I think Jan Polsky needs to read what I've actually written uh, before he proposes objections to it. Um, so preferences means preferences over entire future lives. So it's not, you know, that doesn't include instructions. It's not just, you know, do I like cheese pizza or, or sausage pizza? It's entire future lives, including everything else that happens that I might care about. And you know, there's more than one person. So one person saying kill this guy well the machine would say but that guy doesn't want to be killed so i'm not going to sorry you know you know you and uh 
there's there's one aspect of human preferences which I think is problematic from the point of view of uh, how an AI is supposed to respect human preferences, and that is preferences for the suffering of others. So if you feel better off because other people are worse off, um, so this is not all other things being equal. This is not well. I you know I want I want one more dollar, so I'm willing to inflict a huge amount of pain on you to get one more dollar. This is zero more dollars, right? I just want you to suffer so that I can be happy, right? That is problematic mm-hmm. because um, now that creates an unnecessary trade-off between your happiness and the other person's happiness. And to me, it seems like we should not respect, we should not build machines to respect that form, which you might call negative altruism. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there is... Um, you, know, you might think, well, negative altruists, those, those are like sadists, you know, people who are just derive pleasure from cruelty. I mean, that's those, yeah, those are negative altruists. But there's a form of negative altruism which is actually much more widespread, which is, um, which is uh, economists call these uh, positional goods, right? So, so it's not how much food do I have or how big is my house? It's, is my house bigger than yours? Right. And so you would actually derive happiness from the other person's house becoming smaller, even if yours remains the same size. Right. And that, that kind of relative, uh, component of human preferences, I think it's, it's corrosive to us. And I think it's difficult. It's going to be difficult for machines to cope with. Um, because, Naturally, what the machine will want to do, you know, for a given amount of resources, because almost all utility functions exhibit diminishing returns. So, for example, the utility of money is typically thought to be logarithmic in the amount of money that you have. Um, so, for a given amount of resources, you can you can create a, a greater overall effect on the utility of people by giving those resources to the person who has less. Mm-hmm. And but a, the problem with that is that it decreases the difference, and that decreasing difference, because of these positional preferences that people have, then would appear to reduce the utility of the person who has more, even though you're not actually touching that person at all, right? So this goes all the way up to the guy who wants to have the Gulfstream Six or the Gulfstream Seven personal jet, you know, because that makes him feel better than the person who only has the Gulfstream Four, and you give that person with a four, a Gulfstream five, and then the person with the six is less happy because he feels less of a big guy. You know, and so that aspect of, of human preference structure is, is difficult to deal with. Um, yeah, so, but besides, besides those things, the sort of the sadism and then the I want to be bigger than you, um, I, I think it's, uh, it's fine. So a lot, of, a lot of these objections just come from not thinking through exactly what the, what the principles are recommending. Okay, so let's move beyond the principles and talk a little bit about the technological singularity because Ray Kurzweil has put forward uh, an argument that the singularity is near. And basically, we have this uh, sort mm-hmm. of a teleological movement from less to more intelligence in the universe where uh, intelligence originally uh, originated in biology. Now it's moving in technology and eventually... 
when machines become smarter than humans, somewhere around 2045, we would have the moment of the technological singularity, where all of mm. our ability to model the future would basically fall apart. What's what's your take on the that idea? Well, um, I think there are aspects that I that I don't agree with, um, particularly trying to make predictions based on uh, flops, so floating point operations per second. Uh, um, you know, and, and although this is a bit facetious, you can just argue that, yeah, you know, making machines faster means you get the wrong answer more quickly. Um, it, it does, you know, making machines faster does improve the performance of certain, uh, certain algorithms. For example, chess playing algorithms, you can search a little bit deeper in the same amount of time. Um, or you can search the same amount in, in less time and get the same bad answer quickly uh the biggest effect i think it's had um is is in fact to speed up the rate of experimentation particularly large-scale experimentation for example with computer vision uh and speech recognition you know you used to take weeks and weeks and weeks to to run computer vision algorithms even on a handful of photos um but that's really 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 changed and and i think um it's accelerated the rate of research progress but we need major breakthroughs before we have something that you might call general purpose AI. And uh, there's no way to predict those major breakthroughs based on CPU speed. But let's assume that um, those breakthroughs are going to happen. And when you ask most AI researchers, although I don't put much store in uh, the accuracy of, of these kinds of predictions, but when you ask people when are we likely to have uh, general purpose or human level AI, it typically you get numbers sometime around the middle of the century. And so what, you know, even if Ray Kurzweil is wrong and, and it's nothing to do with CPU power, um, those breakthroughs are going to happen and we're going to have to deal with general purpose AI. The other thing that... Um, Where do you stand on that timeline yourself among the other researchers? Uh, I, I, I generally don't answer that question because uh, <laughs> any any numerical prediction I have would be would be meaningless and uh, you know as I said that it, it requires conceptual breakthroughs to occur um, but you know in my talks I also point to the history of nuclear physics where you know the establishment particularly uh, embodied in the person of Lord Rutherford yeah. predicted with absolute confidence on uh, September 11th, 1933, that extracting energy from atoms was impossible. Um, it would never be done. And he was explicitly answering questions about, you know, what do you think the prospects are for 20 or 30 years into the future? So he wasn't talking about present day technology. He was saying it was never going to be possible. Um, and then the next morning, Leo Zillard read about this in the Times and went for a walk and invented the neutron-induced nuclear chain reaction. So, you know, in that case, the timeline was about 16 hours. Uh, I think we need more than one breakthrough of that nature in AI, but it's very, very hard to predict when those are going to take place. Um, so I don't usually give any numerical prediction, but you know, to me, 2050 seems uh, possibly a bit optimistic. Um, so I guess I would tend towards a, a longer time scale. Um, but the other point is that... Um, you know, machines obviously already exceed human capabilities in, in 
certain narrow areas, arithmetic, uh, you know, the ability to produce computer-generated imagery, right, which people can't do at all, um, and, uh, you know, and now chess playing and Go and um, video games and, uh, and starting to look like yeah, image recognition, speech recognition, machine translation, getting up towards human level capabilities. So um, I would say it's, you know, it's, the trend is towards human level or superhuman capabilities in broader and broader areas. Um, and every time there's a conceptual breakthrough, for example, um, I think the biggest one that we are going to make is to extend the practical timescale of decision-making. So AlphaGo looks ahead 50 moves or something into the future, which is sort of mind-boggling and superhuman. But you know, if you're a mobile robot and you're, you know, motor, you know, the cycle time for motor control might be 10 milliseconds, well, then 50 steps into the future gets you half a second of control, right? So you, know, you can look half a second into the future, half a second doesn't get you very far in the real world. Uh, and humans often do things on timescales of weeks or months, or you know, they, they choose to do a PhD at Berkeley and that's you know, five years, or you know, and they choose to have a career in this. And, you know, so they're, they're making decisions really on sort of scales of lifetimes. And a lifetime is about 20 trillion steps for, for the human animal. Wow. Um, that's a lot, you know, and, so, and that's in the, in the exponent. Right, or maybe even the second exponent, depending on uh, on how complex you think the problem is. So um, we need technologies that would allow machines to to operate seamlessly across across a very wide range of timescales, from milliseconds up to years, and 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 produce coherent and effective plans of actions on those timescales. You know, and humans do that, not always perfectly, but you know we're we, those are the timescales on which we function. And uh, that would be a very, very big breakthrough. And there are pieces of that breakthrough have already occurred. I still think there are a couple of other pieces that, that need to be put into place before we have a full solution to that problem. So if the pieces have occurred, we are making progress then because, uh, yeah. unsurprisingly perhaps, but I probably did the very last interview before Dr. Marvin Minsky passed away with him. And I also did an interview with Noam Chomsky. And for different reasons, both of them denied that we have made any progress towards AGI, but all the progress they said we have made is in very narrow AI. So I just, I just don't think that's true at all. Um, for example, I mean, you know, pick parabolistic reasoning technology. We've made significant progress in parabolistic reasoning technology. Um, and it's not narrow at all. It's completely domain independent. Um, you know, search is completely domain independent, right? AlphaGo is not a Go program, right? And it proved that, or AlphaZero proved that by also becoming the world chess champion and the world shogi champion uh, in the space of 24 hours. Uh, it has certain clear restrictions. One is it's very short time scale. Another is it requires full observability and determinism, but it's not narrow. Uh, it's actually pretty broad. 
When I gave and, those uh, examples to Dr. Minsky, he said, well, the AI doesn't know that you can pull on a string, but you can't push on it. Yeah, but so, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, another, that's another class of problem uh, that involves different, different kinds of, of knowledge. But um, it seems to me that, the, you know, that's a relatively narrow uh, kind of capability. You know, that's a sort of domain-specific ability to, to model and simulate uh, physical systems, and a lot of that's based on experience. Um, so anyway, I, I don't want. I don't think this is a good, uh, a good argument to get into. I, I I think that really we have made quite a bit of progress, you know. And and I think you know if if I say that there are maybe half a dozen major breakthroughs that we still need, um, you know, common sense knowledge and common sense reasoning is is one of them, uh, and along with that, you know, deep understanding of natural language. Uh, those two, I think, to some extent, go together. And um, but the 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 point coming back to the, the main thread of the argument um, is whether there's going to be a singularity. And and the point is that each of these breakthroughs creates enormous progress in the scope of things that machines can do. And within those scopes, they will far exceed human capabilities, but they will still perhaps lack other capabilities that would make them full general purpose intelligent systems. And in particular, systems that would be able to sort of uh, compete or outcompete us uh, in the real world. So you can imagine a system that uh, has common sense knowledge and the ability to understand natural language it would be able to read everything the human race has ever written uh, and integrate all of that knowledge and answer questions on that basis. It would be an unbelievably useful system for us. Uh, but it wouldn't be a general purpose AI system. It wouldn't have, for example, long range planning capabilities or motor control capabilities. Do you think um, and so it would be a different kind of thing from a human. Do you think but it would still be a, a major impact on the on the world. Absolutely, it would have a major impact on the world. But to reach that AGI that we're talking about, do you think that consciousness is a required breakthrough that we need to accomplish, or is irrelevant? Uh, no, I don't think it's necessary. Um, I don't think it's irrelevant in the sense that I think. You know, clearly, I think human consciousness is real. I don't think it's illusory or, uh, you know, and, and it's the basis for, you know, what we call value. Um, and I, in particular, I think it would be a mistake for us to, to say, well, you know, machines are more intelligent. So why don't we humans just disappear and let the machines have the world? Uh, and that'll be, that'll be a good achievement for the human race. No, that would be a terrible mistake because we would uh, probably be extinguishing awareness uh, on Earth and possibly in the universe. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, there are also consequences for consciousness in terms of the rights of machines. And uh, I think, you know, if, if by some miracle we did accidentally or deliberately create 
conscious machines and we figured out that they were conscious, we would have some really, really complicated, difficult problems to solve um, because presumably their consciousness, if it exists, is going to be totally unlike ours. Um, it might well be that they could be conscious but have no notion of suffering. Um, they may have no affect uh, in, that, in that sense of suffering or happiness. Um, and so they, we, we'd have to treat them completely differently. We'd have to have a whole new moral calculus for how to deal with the rights of machines. But this is, um, this is complete speculation because at the moment um, we have absolutely no theory or, or And, um, you know, the, the other interesting thing is that um, the risk, you know, the, the risks of losing control have nothing to do with consciousness. Um, and if you, you think about it, right, if, let's suppose that by typing on my, on my laptop, I can eventually create software that's conscious, right? <laughs> well, it's still software. Right, it's still on my laptop. It's, I, I can still look at all the code. I can still project what that code is going to do. And when I compute that projection, the fact that it's conscious or not conscious has absolutely nothing to do with it. Whether or not it was conscious would not change my projection of how it was going to behave at all because I'm deriving my projection from the code of the, of the program and how that code runs on my laptop. Um, and so it, it seems quite difficult to see how, uh, consciousness is going to play any causal role in AI, uh, in the future, even if we end up with a theory of what is and isn't conscious, uh, at some point. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, the, the achievement of AGI is going to come from solving these uh, these conceptual bottlenecks, which cause current systems to fail, right? And this is the way I've always done my research and practice: is to say, okay, what what is everything we know? I sort of imagine putting it all together into an AI system and sort of plunking it down in the world. So, okay, well, what's the first and most obvious way that it's going to fail, right? And then I say, okay, I'll try and work on solving that problem. And uh, you know that that's been the the way I've organized my research for for the last thirty years, and uh, we still, as I say, we still have a few more breakthroughs to go. And I and I think that you know that even after we solve those, there, there may still be more. At the moment, it's a bit hard to imagine what those might be, but there probably will be some more that need to happen. Um, but uh, at some point, we will get there. Professor Russell, what is the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Uh, so I guess my webpage, uh, in which you can, easiest way to find my webpage is to type my name to a search engine. Um, so that has all of my papers. Uh, it has a link to uh, the new center that we've set up called the Center for Human Compatible AI. Um, which is aiming, when, and, the, and it means what it says, right? AI that is compatible with human existence. Uh, and so 
that's what we're working on primarily right now uh, is how to make AI systems that remain under human control. Professor Asso, we talked together, we had a conversation spanning almost two hours today, and I'm very grateful for that. But if you are to sort of leave us with the single most important message, perhaps, or the one thing that you would like our audience to take away from this conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? Um, I think just the question, what if we succeed? So if you're doing AI, just think about that question. What if we succeed? Dr. Stuart Russell, thank you very much for being with us today. Pleasure. Very nice talking to you. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation.